and welcome to the latest episode of the Own It podcast with me, Iona Bain, and my dad, Simon Bain. We're getting together during lockdown to try and have some funny, frank, and fascinating conversations about the world of finance. Thanks very much to everybody who's got in touch with really nice feedback. Um, I heard from John, who said, great stuff, Iona, really enjoyed the Bailey Gifford discussion. That was all the way back from episode one. And Emma, who said, this is fabulous. I flew by watching and listening to you both. Thanks very much. And also, um, I was contacted by Michael, who asked me how on earth I can do a podcast with my dad without uh, throttling him. Uh, And I can assure him that we just leave those bits out of the final edit. Anyway, moving on. We've got a really interesting episode lined up for you today. We'll be talking about inflation and pensions. Yes, that's right. I said a few weeks ago that we would be tackling the P word, but we're finally getting into it with the help of Romy Stavova, who is CEO of Pension B. That interview is coming up very soon. In the meantime, I just want to flag up that you can now watch the previous episode of the Own It podcast where we were talking about budget 2021. Simon and I were giving a kind of post-match analysis, if you like, of the Chancellor's big speech. So you can now find that on the Young Money YouTube channel. Just search for Young Money blog on YouTube and you should find it. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our future chats. Now, on with the podcast. We're going to talk about inflation today. And for those listening and watching who want a little primer on inflation, is very basically the rate at which prices rise. And here in the UK, inflation is measured by two main indexes or indices, if we're going to be pedantic, Yes. which we really ought to be. Those indices are the consumer price index and the retail price index. And there are various aspects of our personal finances that are tied to both those indices. So whether they go up or down really does affect our money. And it's interesting because over the past year, it's actually been really hard to get a handle on inflation and what's happening with it because of lockdowns and Mm. restrictions. Mm. And that's meant that uh, the Office for National Statistics, which measures the rate of inflation, they look at this basket of goods. It's metaphorical, but it is comprised of real items that we all buy in our everyday lives. Goods and services. Um, Now, there were several items that they were not able to properly record last year because they weren't available (laughs) and they included haircuts Mm. lemonade Mm. manicures and cinema popcorn right things i'm sure you will be desperate to get back to the haircut definitely (laughs) okay the haircut maybe not the manicures and the cinema popcorn so give us an idea of in the broader picture why inflation matters because it's not just about how much the cost of, of lemonade is going up or, or how much manicures cost. It's about more than that, isn't it? Well, I mean, inflation um, has a big effect on our savings if we have savings mm. because we must earn a rate of interest that is at least as much as the rate of inflation. Otherwise, we're losing money. Mm. And I think it's it's a basic thing, but it's something people don't always realise. And also when we're measuring our investment returns, actually, if you look at the stats, they tend to say, well, the stock market has returned an average 5 or 6% over the last 10 or 20 years, whatever it is. And they don't point out that actually that's probably before inflation. What we really need mm. to know is what the returns have been after inflation. Mm, it's funny that, that mm. they don't include yeah. that. <laughs> suit, I think it suits their purpose sometimes. But mm. that's, So that's why we need to know if we're saving or investing. When I first started writing about money and learning about money... I kept reading all these articles about inflation and how you need to make sure you're inflation-proofing your finances. Mm. 
And it took me a while to really grasp the idea that there was this almost invisible death star out there eroding the value of my money. Mm. But when you break it down into real terms, understanding that if you have a hundred pounds this year and the rate of inflation is 4%, mm. you would need 104 pounds next year to buy the same stuff that a hundred pounds would buy you this year. That's right. And really breaking it down into those terms helped me understand that it's, it's real and it can have a big impact on your money over the long term. Well, that's right. And if your investments were earning 4%, but inflation had been 4%, then you're not earning anything. You may as well have it in the bank. Yeah, you're just treading water. Yeah. But of course, it matters to us as well because it tends to reflect how the economy is doing. Not all inflation is bad. Some inflation is good. Yeah, well, like our neighbour having worked on on their roof, yeah. it's a sign that people, money's going round. Yeah, money's going round. People are, are confident. People are spending. That's causing prices to rise, mm. and it's causing wages to rise. Mm. And let's face it, given what we've seen over the past mm. ten years, for a lot of young people, they mm. might think, "Hey, what's the problem? I quite like <laughs> my wages to rise." Yeah, but it's about you know, it's the Goldilocks effect, isn't yes. it? It's not too much and not too little, just the right amount. Um, and of course, we have the Bank of England, whose job it is to, you know, operate the Goldilocks levers so <laughs> that the economy is not too hot and not too cold. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what it does. And its main lever is, of course, interest rates. Mm. And for a long time now, the Bank of England has been tasked, as the government says, to keep inflation at 2% or lower. Right. And so that's its job. And how does it do that? It does it with interest rates. Mm. But of course, there's a problem, isn't there? Because interest rates cannot be cut. They are so low. Yes. So if we rewind to 2008, up until that point, we'd seen really high interest rates. And at times they were scary. I mean, when mm -hmm. you were younger, mm -hmm. say my age, yes. I mean, the kind of interest rates you were seeing, they must have kept you awake at night if you had a mortgage or other types of debt. They peaked at around 21% in, <gasps> in 1980. That is horrific. Um, you know, which is quite amazing now. And yeah. it's, it's strange to think that even just before the crash in 2007, we were still getting 5% yeah. on our savings bonds, which was great. So that's the change. Yeah. From 5%, suddenly it's 0.5% Yeah. immediately after the crash. And, and when it went to 0.5%, for a very long time, people were saying, it's going to go back up. Mm. I mean, it can't go any lower mm. than this. Mm. And now, of course, the base rate is at 0.1%, and mm. there's talk of it going negative. Mm. So it just goes to show that actually it could go lower, and we probably shouldn't rule anything out. No, but if the problem for the bank is that they can't, use that as a lever to encourage more spending and more demand because the point about interest rates being lowered is that it encourages people to spend mm. and to borrow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so it can't do that. So what's it done? Well, it's used quantitative easing, hasn't it? That magic money printing thing that they do. Yes, although it's worth stressing that people think that quantitative easing is, is just printing money. Mm. Well, firstly, it's virtual money these days. Yeah. It's not physical money per yeah. se. And this virtual money is actually used to buy assets so over the past 10 years, we maybe haven't seen that much inflation in the real economy, yeah. even though people's own experience might tell them otherwise. They may <laughs> say, well, I've seen plenty of inflation with my rail tickets, for okay. instance. True. But actually, overall, there hasn't been that much inflation in the real economy, but there has right. been inflation of asset prices. And that has been fueled by QE because the Bank of England was using QE mm. to buy up assets. Yeah. And that encouraged lots of people in the economy to do the same. So that's why house prices have gone through the roof. And that's why we've had this bull market in shares that only ended when, when COVID came along, but True. rebounded pretty quickly after that. It did. And of course, it's benefited some more than others. 
very much so. My generation, I would say, has not been the beneficiary of QE, mm, mm. even though the Bank of England has said that it has benefited younger people, which, as I say in my book, is an interesting take and <laughs> one I don't think many millennials will agree with. But there we go. Sure. We shall, we shall uh, gloss over that for now. What's the outlook for inflation now, especially because the economies are going to reopen at yes. some point? We're not going to be in lockdown well, forever. Well, this is it. I mean, we now have a whole different sort of um, starting point, which is the recession, depression, slump, whatever it's going to be otherwise, caused by the pandemic. Mm. Um, and in the States especially, we have this massive package of, of spending and their equivalent of quantitative easing, which is, you know, actually posting checks to everybody. Yeah. Uh, so there's this huge wall and wave of money being unleashed into the economy. And so it's almost inevitable that that will build up pressures of inflation. And mm. that's what people are worried about. And as to the same extent here with what we're trying to do with our um, budget, you know, it's highly likely that those pressures will build up. The question is, will they build up too quickly and can they be controlled? Mm. Because there are two sides to this coin. We've talked so far about monetary stimulus and this is what is meant by QE and, and money printing and things like that. It's that stimulus coming from central banks. Yes. But when you hear the phrase fiscal stimulus, mm. that's referring to government spending. And that's in right. the US, Joe Biden has this trillion dollar stimulus package mm. that he's going to unleash at a time when the economies are going to be opening back up when mm. there's going to be more money going into the real economy because of QE. Mm. Because the last time round in 2008, arguably a lot of that QE ended up kind of just going into the banking system rather yes. than the real economy. Yes. So there are lots of differences this time round, which mean that inflation really could be the tiger, mm. as it's often referred to, that gets out of the cage. Mm. And once it's running around, mm. you've got to try and catch it by the tail. And that's very, very difficult. Absolutely. I mean, up to now, you know, economists don't really agree on this. You get two economists in a room and they'll always pick a fight <laughs> with one another. A very um, polite fight. A polite fight. Mm. But um, as far as investors are concerned, it's something that uh, everybody watches very carefully because once there are fears that inflation is building up, then the government has to start increasing the amount of money they pay out on government bonds. And so that is the first sign that interest rates may be going up. For investors, the problem is that those rates might start going up rather quickly, mm. rather unexpectedly. And that has implications for what sort of assets you have, you know, in terms of your shares or your bonds, in, in, you know, if you're an investor. Yeah. Um, and especially, um, it can be not good for, for shares mm. um, because bond rates are going up and bonds suddenly become more attractive. Right. Uh, and shares are less attractive. At the moment, the scenario is rather that the big technology shares and all the th shares that have been very successful are suffering. Mm. Um, and so it's an interesting point, really, to, yeah. to see what inf effect that inflation may have on, on our shares. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one to watch. But the bottom line is shares are going to be a lot trickier to navigate in the coming years mm. and that you may not find some of the easy wins mm. that were previously possible with tech companies and you're maybe going to have to go hunting for for what's commonly called value companies yes. i.e those undervalued companies um that, that have got real promise and potential so that could really change the dynamics of investing in years to come but certainly i mean you still have to be in shares because it's better than being in cash if inflation yeah. goes up because for sure. that's you losing money in real terms for sure now it's time for this week's guest Romy Savova is the founder and CEO of Pension B, an online app that allows users to combine all their old pensions into one new plan. 
The company was founded by Romy and Jonathan Lister Parsons in 2014 and in the space of seven years has attracted a lot of attention for its easy-to-use tech and the potential role it could play in reuniting workers with their old pensions. And that's particularly significant because of a really big development called auto-enrolment, something we're definitely going to get into. Romy is also known for being a very persuasive, effective advocate for pensions and being one of the only female CEOs in the world of financial technology. Now, I wanted to talk to Romy about a specific issue, small pension pots. Why is this such a big problem and will it ever get solved? Well, let's find out. Well, Romy, welcome to the Own It podcast. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. First of all, could you just give us a brief history of how you came to be the founder of Pension B? Sure. Well, I had a background in fairly traditional corporate finance, and I did most of my time at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, always covering large financial services providers, but never quite experiencing their services as a consumer until it came time to move my own pension. And what I uncovered was just a nightmare of pension providers that don't really want to talk to you and fund supermarkets that make you choose between thousands of different investment options. And quite frankly, a lot of advisors that didn't call me back because they thought that my pension just wasn't big enough for them to, uh, you know, to be able to offer me their services. Mm. So all in all, you know, it felt like a really poor experience. Um, and the more people I spoke to, the more it became clear that virtually everyone had some sort of pension horror story um, <laughs> that, you know, some languishing pension that they knew very little about. They weren't quite sure how the tax works. In fact, many People think they will be taxed, um, you know, for making contributions into their pension, whereas actually the government gives you tax benefits for doing that. Mm. And so the, the whole pension environment, the whole pension system is just incredibly complex. Uh, and it was so clear that a simple solution would be needed for people to bring old pensions together into a new online plan that they could then monitor from the palm of their hand. It's so sad in a way that you had that experience. And that as a result, there are so many people out there who just find the whole subject of pensions incredibly off-putting and they don't, they don't want to think about it and engage with it. But, but why do we need to think about it and engage with it? Well, it's really important because your pension is effectively your salary for later life. And if you think about it in that way and think about the way you focus on today's salary, really it's no different except it's going to impact you a little further down the line uh, and you know these days people aren't saving enough relative to what they hope to be doing with their retirements so the you know the recommended savings amount and it, it feels like a high figure and it is a high figure is around 15 percent of your gross salary and most people are putting away just a little over half of that mm. uh, through automatic enrollment, which I'm sure we'll cover in a moment. And the reason it's so important that you do try and save as much as you can is because the state pension uh, is probably not going to be sufficient for most people in retirement. And of course, there are many questions as to what the state pension will even look like mm. by the time that, you know, we come to retire or, you know, those who are younger than us come to retire. There's a lot of focus from the government on claiming responsibility for your savings. And, and, and that's why it's so important. 
Absolutely. Um, a huge factor that you just mentioned there that will determine young people's pensions in the future is auto-enrolment. Can you explain what that is and what kind of issues it throws up for young people's retirement plans? So auto-enrollment is actually a really excellent government reform that has mandated every employer to offer the majority of its employees a workplace pension. So most people will find that they are automatically enrolled into these workplace pensions by their employer. And the employer will automatically deduct a certain proportion of your salary and it will add contributions itself too. And you will get a government tax top up in most instances when you pay into these pensions. So the total amount that ends up going in is 8%. And that is the legal minimum that the employer arranges for. Uh, now, many employers uh, are more generous and they pay in more than their proportion. So their usual proportion, proportion is roughly 3%, but they can pay in more. So for example, a company like Pension B would pay in 5% for its employees, effectively matching the, the other contributions. And therefore you end up saving a total of around 10%, but that's not always the case. And so most individuals have the option to make additional contributions into their pensions in order to build up the total amount. But of course, it can be difficult. And many of these pension providers are hard to access. Sometimes the online portals don't work as well. Other times, uh, you know, there's a requirement to fill in complex paperwork in order to be able to put money in. And so many people don't do more than what the legal minimum is, leaving an effective hole uh, in their finances for the future. The, the other huge problem is pension pots left behind. So every time you start a new job, you leave behind these pension pots. And therefore the average person, if you look at the statistics from the Department of Work and Pensions, the average person could wind up with 11 different pension pots because the average person has around 11 different jobs in their career, which is a pretty astonishing number and a huge amount of paperwork to keep track of. Yeah, absolutely. So first problem <laughs> is that we're not saving enough. And the second problem is that we're going to have all these small pension pots left behind when we move from job to job. But some people might say, well, what's the problem with that? Because surely if we have these pensions run perfectly well on our behalf and uh, we keep an eye on them and we don't lose track of them, um, then we don't need to worry too much about having lots of different pension pots in different places. What would you say to that? Well, it's certainly a, a fair challenge and there is a theme around not putting all of your eggs in one basket. However, the reason why that doesn't necessarily apply to your old scattered workplace pensions is, first of all, it is very hard to keep track of multiple different pots uh, because usually there isn't sufficient online accessibility to be able to see how your, you know, what your balance is, how it's performing, what the charges are, and therefore a lot of people become disconnected from those balances and until you really see them together in one place it's tough to know 
how much what you have today will ultimately generate for you tomorrow. So there are helpful things like pension calculators where you can input the total amount of pension savings that you have, and they will help you figure out what you are likely to receive in retirement subject to various circumstances and, and assumptions that you can also input into. So until you have that full view of what your balance is, it's very hard to know how much it's going to buy you in the future, and therefore very hard to know exactly how much you should be putting in today. And it's part of what causes this, you know, I'm going to leave it in a drawer to, you know, to sort out later. The, the other thing is around fees, actually, there is um, a government charge cap on default funds, uh, which is the predominant type of fund that your pension would go into through your employer. And that, that fee cap is 0.75%. But there are varying interpretations of how that 0.75% can be constituted and whether it's a percentage charge or a pound-based charge. And of course, pound-based charges can be exceptionally high if we are talking about some of the smaller pension pots that we tend to accumulate through jobs where there is a short service. And so actually, you can find that the charges on some of these small pensions can be exorbitantly high. And in fact, we've seen examples where charges have completely eroded the pension away. And these sorts of things can occur. And therefore, it is important for you to understand exactly where your money is and what the charges that you are paying for it are. So let's talk about pension consolidation and how sure. that works. What are the pros and cons? Because that's a service that's offered by Pension B. Yeah, yeah. So Pension B helps our customers to combine their old pensions into a new online plan. Uh, and that can be very beneficial for a couple of reasons. First of all, it enables you to see your pension balance in one place and therefore to be able to use our calculators to see what that might mean for you in retirement, subject to various assumptions. You can then decide whether you want to pay more into your pensions uh, in order to increase the total amount of savings you have and hopefully your retirement income as a result of that. You can also keep an eye on your fees and how much it's costing you to have your pensions managed. And generally speaking, the more you have in a pension, the lower your fee will be, regardless of which pension provider you're with. So it's important to be able to keep an eye on that through consolidation. And then there is the benefit, of course, of the way that you invest your money. And increasingly, people are starting to think about what it means to own a pension, because what it means to own a pension is that you're actually invested in thousands of different companies, some of which you might want to be invested in, and some of which, like many of our customers, you don't want to be invested in. And in that category would fall, you know, companies like tobacco producers or fossil fuel manufacturers, um, or, you know, producers of controversial weapons, uh, and so on. If you don't know where your pension is, it's highly likely that you will be invested in these types of companies because they tend to be the biggest companies in the world. And most pension funds are invested in the biggest companies in the world. So consolidating can help you keep an eye on what your pension money is actually doing with respect to the investments. And for those reasons, it can give you a greater sense of control and preparedness for your eventual retirement. So you can keep an eye on your charges 
and you can also keep an eye on what your your pension is invested in. But are there particular situations and circumstances where consolidation may not be such a good idea? Yes, there are. Generally speaking, there are two kinds of predominant pension types in the UK, and most new types of pensions are so-called defined contribution pensions. They're very simple and straightforward, meaning your money is invested in uh, large companies usually in the world, and it changes in value depending on how the valuation of those underlying companies changes. The other type of pension is a so-called defined benefit pension, and those pensions make promises to pay you a certain amount of income in retirement. And those promises, which are offered by your employer or your old employer and are backed up um, to a substantial amount by the government, are incredibly valuable. And therefore, it's usually not recommended that they are moved from where they are. And in fact, if you have one of these defined benefit pensions and it's worth more than £30,000, you are required to obtain financial advice. So in practice, we actually see very few people moving those types of pensions because usually it is better to keep them where, where they are. There are certain other special benefits that you might get from some of the older pensions. So for example, guarantees around an income that you may be able to purchase in the future or a protected pension age, meaning you can retire a bit earlier um, or a uh, additional tax-free benefit that you might get from your pension in the future. And these are all quite rare, but it's something that we actually check for in the paperwork we receive and alert our customers to before, uh, before they complete their transfer so they can consider if they still want to. So there are certain exceptions around where it doesn't make sense to, to consolidate and those should definitely be watched out for. The only final one I'll flag is exit fees because they do still come up even in this day and age on occasion. They tend to feature in a minority of pensions, but where they occur, they can be large. And so that's something that we alert our customers to when we find as well. Mm. And I suppose, as always, if in doubt and if you can, seeking financial advice on this stuff is is a good idea. Um, let's talk about the pensions dashboard. It doesn't yeah. exist yet, but there's been a lot <laughs> of talk about it in the pensions industry and where it come to pass, it surely would help solve a lot of the issues and problems that we've been discussing in relation to small pension pots. So can you explain what the pensions dashboard is and the kind of potential challenges it could present? Mm -hmm. Sure. So the pension dashboard, the, the primary use case that the government is currently aiming to deliver with the pension dashboard is to help people find their lost pensions. And so at the outset, the dashboard uh, will enable you by entering some information about yourself to be able to search the various pension providers that might hold a pension for you. Uh, and of course, that is a great thing because it's estimated that around 20 billion pounds in pensions are effectively lost uh, and savers have completely, um, you know, misplaced or never received the paperwork uh, associated with them. So it can help, you know, reunite people with those uh, with those 20 billion pounds now that that is an important use case but we think that you know the the pensions market overall is a one trillion pound market um, of total pension savings 
within this defined contribution space in particular. And so the 20 billion problem is, it is a problem, but there are bigger problems um, that we hope the dashboard will solve in the future. So because the dashboard needs to be able to connect with roughly 40,000 different pension schemes, uh, which is a huge number, the amount of data that it will be able to deliver um, in its initial stages is going to be quite limited. And, and therefore, we think that over time, it's really important for the dashboard to aggregate more valuable data so that consumers have the ability to make the types of decisions that they need to make. For example, uh, information around charges, information around investments, uh, information around uh, you know, guarantees and other special benefits, that type of information may not be included in the very initial version of the dashboard. And so while it will help us to find that 20 billion pounds of lost pensions, it will be just the first step in understanding what to then do about them. And are there any other solutions to the problem of small pension pots? You know, could we ever get to a point where people's pension pots are automatically consolidated into one scheme or that your pot would follow you from job to job? Or are those ideas just unrealistic? I think those ideas have been thrown around um, for, for many years. I think there are real logistical challenges around them. Uh, one is, of course, the cost of the transfers and how that cost is borne and by whom. Um, currently, there is a fee um, that most pension providers will pay in order to be able to transfer a pot electronically. That cost increases dramatically with non-electronic transfers. And so the cost of delivering these solutions can be very high. There is also limited data integration between um, pension providers and payroll providers, because one of the solutions is of course that payroll providers should simply direct your pension contributions into whichever pension plan you as a consumer have chosen. But the level of data integration between payroll providers and pension providers is currently too limited to be able to facilitate that. So overall solutions that I think we will continue to explore as an industry, but because of that fragmentation and those 40,000 different pension schemes ultimately being needed to participate in whatever solution is available, the challenges around you know, group coordination are just very high. Hmm. So it seems as if, certainly for the foreseeable future, people are just going to have to take so much more responsibility and really keep an eye on their pensions and take further steps to to organize them as best they can do you have indeed you know one or two tips for people who are starting out in this area that that haven't really thought that much about their pensions before um, but want to make sure that they are organized and that they are on top of them if you if you want to get started, you can start learning about different pension providers by using some comparison websites. 
and pensions are a category that is newly emerging uh, on comparison websites, but one that has the most in-depth uh, set of reviews and comparisons is a company called Boring Money, where they've uh, ranked and weighted different pension providers based on things like value and service quality and website quality, and you can have a look for yourself uh, around what is available. You can also contact your current pension provider and some of your previous pension providers uh, to see whether you have old pensions that you might, you know, that you might want to consider transferring. You can also try talking to your employer and seeing and see what information they have available for their employees. And uh, if you, you know, if you do find yourself with some free time, you might want to open the drawer uh, where you keep all of your paperwork and, and have a look in there, because sometimes you can be surprised at the paperwork you find, especially around pensions. Mm. And have a look in your inbox as well, because there could be some. And in your inbox. Yeah. yeah, there could be some communications from pensions providers there that you need to That's look right. at. um well that's incredibly helpful Romy thank you so much and before I let you go um you announced recently that Pension B may float on the London Stock Exchange which is very exciting is there anything that you can tell us about that well what I can confirm is that we are exploring a listing on the high growth segment of the London Stock Exchange which is a segment that is reserved for high growth companies Uh, We think that London would present an ideal listing venue for British companies and have been very vocal about this. Uh, We've also announced that in any prospective IPO that we have, our customers would be eligible to participate as well. And we've partnered with a company called Primary Bid in order to be able to deliver the functionality in due course. Uh, And so that is about as much information as I can give you. But I will say that we're working very, very hard to make it a reality. Very, very exciting. Well, I look forward to hearing more about it in due course. Um, But thank you so much, Romy, for coming on the Own It podcast. Thank you for having me. So with the advent of auto-enrolment, we now have millions of young people automatically saving for their retirement, which is brilliant. But there is a massive downside that I explored in my interview with Romy, which is that we will also be building up lots of small pension pots as we move from job to job. Because unless we're very lucky or very loyal, then we're most likely to have multiple jobs throughout our lifetime and therefore multiple pension pots. And I think this really gets to the heart of what pension policy is today, which is that whilst the state will provide for you up to a point and take steps to ensure that you are saving automatically into your workplace pension, that is not a silver bullet and you are still going to have to take responsibility for your own retirement in a way that maybe hasn't always been the case. Certainly not. You know, in the old days, you tended to work for fewer employers and you were able to transfer your your old-fashioned pension quite easily from one to another and uh, the pension would fall out of the sky when you were 65 or 60. But then the 1990s, um, the government sort of woke up to the fact that the state pension was going to cost a huge amount. Because we were living longer, and that was clear even at that point. That's right. Um, And they sort of thought, well, hang on a minute, let people provide for themselves Mm. to top that pension up. Um, That's when personal pensions came in. We didn't have personal pensions till then. 
Um, and so ever since then, we have had to take that responsibility in one way or another. And in mm. a way, auto-enrolment is just a new version of that. Mm. Because if we have multiple pensions, it's not the employer who's responsible at all. We're responsible. We have that individual contract with that provider. And it's going to be a different provider every time, probably. Mm. Um, and so that's the whole shift that's taken place, as well as having personal pensions on offer as well, yes. alongside them. So we're going to end up with a very complicated messy Mm. pensions journey Mm. and we are also getting involved getting into bed with Mm. the pensions industry very much so yes and i think that you can provide some (laughs) examples of how much the pensions industry can Mm. profit from our apathy and our ignorance when it comes to pensions well i think you know in the sort of uh what was it, 25 years or something, I was writing about pensions. Um, We were always writing about how charges need to come down and how uh, the industry was making too much money out of people. And government and the regulator were sort of fighting a battle against that all that time, actually. Um, And this was the beginning of the the era. And this is 1994, a piece that I've unearthed um, in uh, Scotland on Sunday. And you um, wrote this? Which I wrote this, uh, Charges of Very Heavy Brigade. What a fantastic pun headline that yes, is. Yes, yes. And alongside it is a table of the big hitters, uh, led by Guardian, one of the old insurers, mm-hmm. charging 5%. And then coming down to the light brigade, newcomers such as Marks & Spencer, um, charging 1.2%. So M&S were offering pensions as well as undies in the 1990s. Correct. Who knew? Yes. So that was Well, a... I didn't know because I was only six. Okay. So pensions were a mere twinkle in my eye in okay. 1994. <laughs> okay. Well, that was the competition coming in that was supposed to reduce charges. But there are always ways in which the industry could revert to the old charges because old plans that came in under the old rules mm. could carry on charging the old amounts. Oh, how, how, it how was, convenient. It, it was, and it kept, it kept the industry going, you know. Um, But then fast forward to 2007, and guess Mm -hmm. what? 13 years later, here's another piece I've unearthed, and the headline is Outrage at 9% Commission. Mm. Um, And this is where the salesman gets his reward up front, his commission up front, for selling the pension in the first place. And if you're going to knock up to 9% off somebody's payment that they first make into their pension, it's going to take a huge amount off that. You know, totally. And that was sort of in theory outlawed, but in practice it wasn't because they, they were still getting around it at that time mm. to offer these huge commissions to, to, to salesmen. So there were still loopholes. There were still loopholes. But let's go forward to 20, uh, 2017, shall because we? Because in that previous year, I yes. think I was in my second year at university and um, probably more aware of finances, but mm. mainly focused on partying yeah, well, and enjoying probably. myself at university. Probably. But you moved on. I did, look, I did. So happened. we have we've had exhibit A, exhibit B and exhibit C. Exhibit C is <laughs> Iona Bain writes why the nine thousand pound David saved into a pension over eleven years turned out to be worth we turn over the page. Nothing. Da, da, da. How on earth could that happen? Do you remember? I do remember, yes, David was saving into his pension throughout the 90s and noughties, um, and yet he was told later on when he inquired as to the value of this pension Mm. pot, which he assumed would be pretty substantial, um, that he was actually paying charges of £400 a year, uh, which would then lead to his pension pot being worth nada. Zilch. By the time he was 65, yes. By the time he was 65, when, funnily enough, you do actually need your pension. Yes, yes. So um, that was remarkable. I mean, I just could not believe that even 
today, even in, 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 in this modern age, that we could still have pensions that came with those kinds of charges. It was well, incredible. I mean, the regulator and the government are saying that they will not allow flat charges like that on small pots, which reduce them to nothing. They've recognised that. Yes. And it's interesting that that, that figure of £400 on his pension, original pension of 8000 is is like a 5% charge, mm. which was we, the highest one we were highlighting in 1994. So we come round full, full circle. But there was a happy ending with our news agent, David, was there not? There was, yes. He uh, came to me, and after I wrote this piece in the mail, he managed to get how much money? Uh, the proper return that he should have had on the pension if it yes. had been earning the returns that the stock market made, and he walked away with over £16,000 in the end. That's right, <laughs> yes, he managed to get £16,000, which mm. I think um, made him very happy that we'd walked into his newsagent and uh, started chatting to him about pensions. I think so. <laughs> I think he must be the only person who's happy to talk about pensions now. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's podcast. A huge thanks to Romy Savova for joining us. Now, it's publication day for my new book, Own It, on Tuesday, March the 16th. Yay! So the next episode will be a recording of the launch event for the book, where I'll be doing a free Q&A on savings, pensions and investments with Simon and viewers at 6pm. That's on Tuesday, March the 16th. If you want to register, use the link in the show notes. It should be a blast. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe, follow, rate and review the podcast if you like it. I really hope to see you at Tuesday's book launch and that you'll join us for next week's episode.